as you can tell by the notes, we have a lot to cover. So we are going to um, tackle this passage by God's great grace. Um, first point, we're just going to kind of roll right into it. We're going to talk this morning about when humanity meets deity, what happens? It's kind of the following question, and we're going to see two examples of that this morning in our passage. The first thing we need to look at is the humanity of Jesus. Our passage this morning really begins by giving us a great picture of the humanity of Jesus. There are kind of two ways Jesus shows His humanity in this passage. So if you'd like to follow along in the notes, I say things like letter number and refer to either an A or a number or something along those lines. So letter number A is Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered. Now remember from last week's passage that the theme kind of leading up to this point is the Son of Man being glorified through His death. As we see in verses 23 through 25 of John 12, He says, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And so we see that theme continuing on somewhat, because the first thing out of Jesus' mouth in today's passage is, now is my soul troubled. And this word troubled cannot be overlooked. It is a very powerful word. It brings up things like revulsion, horror, anxiety, agitation. In fact, the word itself means to stir something up. Jesus is saying to my very core, to my soul, I am agitated. In Matthew's account where Jesus comes later to the disciples when they're in the boat, remember Jesus sends them on the boat, and then He comes taking a stroll on the Sea of Galilee, and it says in Matthew 14, 26, it says, when the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And that word terrified is the same word used here when Jesus is saying, my soul is troubled. And so Jesus in this moment was agitated. He was horrified. He was terrified. A term we might even use today would be to say something like, Jesus was wrecked. So why would Jesus be troubled? What are some things that give us the idea of, you know, oh yeah, absolutely, I understand why the Son of God is troubled right now. Three things to kind of point out why He was troubled. Number one would be the pain of the cross. And this is the one that I think most people would think of since the major point in the passage is the method by which Jesus would die. And that makes sense. There is no doubt that kind of growing up under Roman rule, you knew and probably even saw 
possibly on a regular basis, the incredibly torturous punishment of, the crucifi- of crucifixion. I mean, the Romans crucified thousands of people. Jesus even knew, uh, and, and can you imagine that, that you knew for a fact, like Jesus did, that this was in your future? He says in the passage in verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, and interestingly enough, in the first century, in that time, in Jesus' time, when you said lifted up, that was synonymous with crucifixion. That's why the crowd came to such a quick conclusion like, wait a minute, you said you'd be lifted up. The Messiah is supposed to be around forever. Because they knew that when Jesus said, when I be lifted up, they didn't, they didn't know, you know, they didn't think that a bunch of people would come up and throw him on the shoulder and say, for he's a jolly good fellow or anything like that. They knew exactly what he meant, that he was going to be crucified. And so the point here is, in Jesus' humanity, Jesus had to be deeply troubled over not just dying, which is, I can't imagine how an infinite being would imagine that. But not just dying, but dying in such a horrible way. The second reason he would be troubled is, He was taking on sin. Being crucified meant so much more for Jesus than a painful death. The brutality of the cross was met with an even greater torture, in a sense. Jesus bore the sins of His people. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And then in Isaiah 53, 6, it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him, essentially is what that's being referred to. He took our place, which means he not only took our punishment, he took our sin as well. And the third reason Jesus would be troubled is he would be taking on the wrath of God. It's not in my notes, but can you imagine, here's Jesus hanging on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I don't think in our humanity we can understand all of the ramifications of that, but there was just such a wrath being poured on the sun and such a bearing of the sin that it blotted out the unity of the, of the Trinity in some capacity. By taking on the sin of His people, Jesus faced the wrath of His Father against God, against sin, excuse me. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, the two previous verses to that verse say, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. Folks, we were the transgressors, but He was the one who was pierced and crushed. We were the enemies of God. We were the objects of God's wrath, but He was the one who was chastised and crushed 
And therefore, by his wounds or basically by the punishment he received on our behalf, we were healed. But not only was Jesus' humanity shown through him suffering in his soul, his humanity was also shown, and this is letter number B, Jesus struggled. Verse 27, again, he says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. So we see he's deeply troubled, and then Jesus kind of asks himself, what shall I say? Have you ever been in a situation like that? Many of us have. There's just so much trouble, or so much pain, or so much heartache, or so much mess, or so much loss, that in that situation, you're just like, what can I say here? And as Jesus is thinking about the cross, and he's thinking about, you know, the suffering that he would be going through, he says, what shall I say? And so, in his desperation, he immediately just asks the Father for help. He says, Father, save me from this hour. And we see Jesus' agony here on full display. He has confessed to being troubled in his soul, and he has confessed to struggling with finding the words to say. And so in this moment of crying out to the Father for help, we see the humanity of Jesus is instantly met with the deity of the Father. And that's point two, when the humanity of Jesus meets the deity of the Father. What happened when Jesus' humanity met the deity of the Father? Here's some things. Letter number A, Jesus died to His humanity. He says in verse 27, my soul is troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And you can almost, if you're dramatic or whatever, you can almost feel a pause before he goes on. He kind of just says, Father, save me from this hour. Pause. And then he says, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. D.A. Carson says, Jesus can no sooner pray to be spared this hour to escape this cup, then he must face again his unswerving commitment to adhere to the Father's will. He was called to that hour. And this is really an illustrator of what Jesus was talking about in last week's passage. In verse 23, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In verse 24, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but, it die, it, it, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so there's no doubt that Jesus was referring to his death on the cross when he was talking about that. And that had to happen in order for much fruit to happen, for drawing all people to himself But I promise you folks, there had to have been several moments of denial and death to his humanity prior to that situation. We know of at least two. We have this moment here that we're talking about. We also have the Garden of Gethsemane, where he is, you know, literally sweating great drops of blood and crying out to the Father, and he's saying, Father, may this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, your will be done. 
So what I mean by Jesus dying to his humanity is basically him dying to anything that would try to convince him to escape the pain and the horror of the cross. He had to do that. That was the Father's will for him to go through those things. And so he says in our passage this morning with with absolute resignation, because he really has no other place to go, he says in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And that word glorify means to esteem, to to recognize, to, to honor, to praise, to celebrate. So he says, Father, bring esteem to your name. Father, bring recognition to your name. Father, bring honor and praise to your name. And Father, may others celebrate your name. And the Father answers with, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Isn't that a beautiful thing? We, we say, okay, that's got to do with he's glorified it in the past, and he's going to glorify it through Jesus dying on the cross for sins and that sort of thing. And that is true. But folks, since Jesus died on the cross for sins, guess what? He glorified his name this morning. We have esteemed his name this morning. We have recognized his name this morning. We have honored and praised him this morning. And we have celebrated his name this morning. And this happened because Jesus died to his humanity and stayed on the road to the cross. Better number B is this, the deity of the Father literally flips the script on the very thing that was troubling Jesus' soul. Though Jesus says that this audible voice from the Father was for the people and not for Him, there had to have been some encouragement or affirmation in Jesus' heart. And here's why. Jesus essentially from that point begins to launch into listing some things that will happen due to His commitment to the Father's will. And these are beautiful things. First of all, the cross makes Jesus the hinge pin on all humanity. Jesus says in verse 31, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Jesus' death and resurrection basically makes the central question, folks, for all of humanity, what will you do with Jesus? That's it. The central question for all of humanity is, what will you do with Jesus? And the world will be judged by this question. If anyone in the world answers this question with, uh, you know, he's kind of a great guy, oh, he's a wise teacher, oh, he's just a character in some sort of fiction. If someone answers that question with that, unless they repent, they will experience the wrath of God for all eternity. But if the answer is, he is God in the flesh, he is the King of kings, he is the Lord of lords, he is my Savior, he is the one who lived a perfect life and transferred his perfect righteousness into my account when he became sin for me. He died on the cross, paying the penalty for my sins, 
and rose from the dead so that I can live with Him and not live for myself ever again. This answer from the heart means that by God's great grace, that person will escape the judgment of the world. But this all hinges on that one event, doesn't it? It hinges on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Number two is this, the cross makes the devil the eternal loser. It does. Verse 31, he says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. There's not enough time to go into detail here, but I want to kind of briefly, and I say briefly, I have four things. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I want to briefly point out what it means for, and it's not even in your notes, um, but I want to briefly point out what it means for Satan or the devil to be cast out. I think these are important. Number one is this. The cross of all things should have been the gold medal moment for Satan, right? It should have been. He brutalized Jesus, and then he killed him. That looks like a win in any kind of, uh, you know, gladiatorial first century kind of sporting event. But we know it was the exact opposite. Number two, the cross disarmed the devil's weapon of sin or sin guilt. In Scripture, he is called the accuser of the brethren. And he says, hey, Bill, I heard what you said the other day. I saw what you saw et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I can say, on the basis of what Scripture says, God nailed my record of debt to the cross. Which is mind-blowing because the only thing nailed to the cross was Jesus. He cannot accuse me because I've been forgiven because of God's great grace. And so his accusations fall off of us like water off a duck's back. Number three, the resurrection disarmed the devil's weapon of death. Paul greatly says in, I think, Philippians, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus' resurrection basically in all points and purposes made death a speed bump. Speed bumps are annoying. How many of y'all avoid uh, juniper? You'll go the three and, a, three and a half extra miles in any direction just to not go, uh, 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 you know, 16 times, something like that. So, so we avoid that road because speed bumps are, number one, annoying, number two, uncomfortable, but they're never final. Never final. Unless you're just driving really, really fast, but that's a whole other side. But, but they're, they're never, never final. So you're going down the road, you get oh, speed bump, you slow down, or you maybe hit at the regular speed or something like that and that sort of thing. And that's what death is because of what Christ has done. Satan can no longer say, well, I'll just kill you. We'll say, thank you very much. Ba-boom, heaven. What an amazing thing. And then finally, number four, one day Satan will be officially thrown into hell for all eternity. Revelation 20, verse 10. He will. And that will be a glorious day as well. All right, point number three. 
The cross secures a worldwide people for the glory of God. The cross secures a worldwide people for the glory of God. Verse 32, he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And Troy handled this verse so well last week that I will just touch on it briefly. I agree with him. This is not a case for universalism. Excuse me. This is not a case where, you know, uh, I'm going to call all people and therefore all will be saved or something along those lines. A right conclusion for the term all people is to say people from every tongue, tribe, and nation which is in full agreement of Revelation 7, 9, and 10, which says, after this I looked and behold a multitude, a great multitude, and no one, that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. No matter how wicked the tribe Someone or multiple someones will be saved from those tribes, and that's an amazing thought. I was, uh, on Friday, I have an opportunity every so once in a while to teach at the Okaloosa County Jail, and so I was teaching the Bible, and I came across kind of, I think this passage or something like that, and just said, people will be saved from a tribe that's having a human being for dinner right now. Someone's going to get saved in a cannibalistic tribe. That is powerful testimony to the grace of God. And so, by being lifted up, Jesus secured that these things will happen. And so, Jesus might have had a brief moment where in His humanity He asked the Father to deliver Him from the cross, but it was very short-lived because, and here's kind of the wrap-up of those first two points, and that is this, when the humanity of Jesus meets the deity of the Father, The result is to follow the Father. Point number three, the humanity of Jesus' audience. Now this is not a perfect parallel, but there are some similarities. But this one is a no-brainer, so I'll be brief. Of course Jesus' audience was human, but their humanity was displayed in two different ways. Number one, their response to the voice of God. Verse 28 and 29 says, then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there heard it and said that it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And folks, there's really no evidence that they truly understood the voice. They may have not even gotten the word. Some said it thundered, which may mean they just heard noises, loud booming sounds. Others got the source wrong. Even though Jesus was clearly speaking to the Father, they said, an angel spoke to him. Nicely put, they didn't get it. So when Jesus said, this voice was not for his sake, but for theirs, he meant he did not need an audible voice from the sky to kind of bolster the fact that he knew God answered prayer. But once Jesus' disciples kind of lived through these things, Watching their, say, watching their Lord be crucified, all these horrible, terrible things, when they needed to kind of make sense of it all, reading about God's verbal affirmation of everything that they just saw that was terrible and didn't look like God was involved, would help them very much, would give them great encouragement. 
But in that moment, they did not get it. The second way their humanity is on display is their response to Jesus saying he would be lifted up. Verse 34 says, the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Again, they prove that they didn't get it, but this one is slightly more understandable. As was pointed out earlier, Jesus said he'd be lifted up. That means he would be dead. And there was a tremendous amount at this point, a tremendous amount of messianic expectations. And they were high. Here's this guy going around teaching like nobody else is teaching. He's healing people. He, you know, these kinds of things are happening. We're seeing connections. I think probably at this point they're seeing his connection of son of man as a connection back to Daniel and that messianic prophecy there. They may not have gotten it at first. That's kind of a scholarly thing to do. The Pharisees probably totally got it. But they, you know, were finally starting to kind of understand that because they go on to say, you know, the Son of Man must be lifted up and that sort of thing. And Jesus didn't say that. He said, I will be lifted up. So they were making the connections there. So messianic messianic expectations were high. But in the law, it did say certain places in several places that the coming Messiah would reign over an eternal kingdom. So in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. So I could see where they would make the conclusion, hey, this guy's going to be around forever. And this guy is really looking like this Jesus person. So what's he saying? He's going to be crucified? They didn't get it. In fact, they finished their statement with, who is this son of man then? Proving their belief that he was the Messiah was on very shaky ground. Because Jesus was not lining up with who they thought the Messiah should be. And so Jesus comes in with a rebuke on their unbelief. So here is when the humanity of the audience meets the deity of Jesus. Point number four. And I'll land in just a moment on this one. Jesus does not answer their question. Instead, he starts to talk about light and darkness which is a prevalent theme in the book of John. So in verse 35, he says, So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. And in verse 36, While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Jesus immediately takes them to his deity. He says, I am the light of the world. And because of everything I just said about being crucified, you will not have the light with you for very long. He's essentially telling them, walk in my light. Walk in my instructions. Walk in my wisdom. Walk in my way. Walk in my words. And stop walking in your perceived light, which is actually darkness. Darkness. 
Quit walking in your instructions, in your wisdom, your way, in your words. If you continue to walk this way, the darkness will overtake you, and you will end up not knowing where you are going. And that sure sounds like the culture today, doesn't it? And Jesus buttons this up perfectly by saying at the end, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And then just to give them a visual of this, I think that's what he's doing here, he leaves and hides. He says, you want to know what it feels like for me not to be around? Bye. And in John's record, interestingly enough, Jesus makes one other public appearance in verses 44 through 50, and the public doesn't see him again until he is being crucified. Truly, as he says, the judgment of the world has come. So, with that in mind, kind of the conclusion to these final two points is this. When the humanity of people meets the deity of Jesus, the results should be the same. Follow the Son. When the humanity of people meets the deity of Jesus, the results, like the previous statement in a sense, should be the same, and that is, follow the Son. And so just to wrap it up with a kind of a, a challenge, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? For the unbeliever in the room, will you die to your humanity, your instructions, your wisdom, your way, your word, and live in His light? Today is the day you can become a child of the light. For the believers in the room, perhaps you're in a situation, if you're not, you will be, where you know that the Lord's light, excuse me, where you know the Lord's light for the thing you're facing. You know what His Word says. You know what His intentions are for you. You know His instructions. You know His wisdom for that situation. But you are really struggling with following the Son. If I can just ask of you, do not give into the darkness of your own way. Don't. Do not give in to the darkness of your own way. Die to your humanity. My way, my instructions, my wisdom, my this. Die to your humanity and be a child of the light. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we've had to study your word. I pray, O oh Lord, that you will do what only you can do, Lord. You bring the dead to life. 
And so I pray, oh God, that if there are unbelievers in our congregation, and statistically there probably are, I pray, oh God, that you will be working on their heart right now and leading them to die to their humanity and pursue you with all of their might, Lord. May they, under the conviction of sin by your Holy Spirit, repent of their sin, trust in you by faith, and receive the forgiveness of sins. Trusting in what you have done on the cross as the sin bearer, as the one who became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. But Lord, I pray also for believers in this room, if they are struggling with something right now and they know what they should do, they know what your word says. They know what, what, what kind of light you are shining on that situation, but they're scared. It's risky. Or perhaps, Lord, they are getting very comfortable with their sin and there's an idol of the heart that needs to be forsaken. Whatever is hindering them from dying to themselves and allowing you to live in and through them, Lord, I pray that they would repent and follow the Son. What a beautiful thing, Lord, that when our humanity comes into contact with, clashes against, meets up with your divinity. Your divinity is so very much more powerful that it can swallow up our humanity. And we can answer well and right and good the question of what did we do with Jesus, Lord? Each and every one of us is faced with this question on a daily basis, Lord. Help us, Father, to answer it well by living according to your light as children of the light and not to pursue in any way, shape, or form any other influences that would take us away from the light into darkness. I pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.